Hi, and welcome to the Play Tectonics Podcast. I'm Emily Hall. In Episode 7, Jeff Payton picks up on Arthur Brill's investigation of Question 3. Can 40,000 parents be lost in the education wilderness? Is the Part 3 question which appeared in the New York State Region's Examination for English Language Arts fair and appropriate? Of course, we know this will spark controversy, if not anger, among the petition signers. However, we think it's worth the risk. If we want to change the system, we must be willing to transform our thinking about education. We ask those open-minded enough to extend discussion on the issue as a family exercise. Because, as we all know, exercise is good. Now, here's Jeff. I intend this podcast as a direct challenge to the nearly 40,000 New York parents who signed the petition, which protested the unfairness of question three. The questions seemed to explode, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in 1947. Biblical writings found amidst the dust inside unearthed pottery. With laser precision, parents have zeroed in like historians clamoring to cut apart the test question, the primary source, which in this case was a short story published in the distant antiquity of 1922. Miss Brill was the story by Catherine Mansfield. I propose we use the laser to light our way through to an inconvenient truth rather than use it as academic weaponry. The overwhelming response to question three is an opportunity for us to explore the subject of learning culture transformation that few, if any, leaders in education have dared to broach. We know this to be self-evident. Testing, which is the cornerstone of modern education, tethers the teacher, forces a kid's mind into a straitjacket, and makes learning an adult-dominated game show or spelling bee. In stark contrast, authentic learning experiences propelled by a playful adult or some peers can daily empower and inspire a kid's mind. The question is, do we honor young minds inside the four walls of the classroom, or do we dishonor them? So here's a case in point. Did you ever learn about Alfred Wegener? He was the weatherman who framed the theory that the continents move on plates. Wegener was laughed at by geologists. Not to take away anything from Wegener's achievement, but don't you think fifth graders could also see that the continents are positioned like puzzle pieces on the world map? That fifth graders would be curious enough to ask how the pieces got that way? If kids can use their imagination in looking at the continental shapes on the globe, then could they not use the same imagination to collect clues in a passage that they are asked to read? In not being able to navigate the labyrinth of the ermine toque in question three, it's fair to consider that kids weren't taught or empowered to read and dig for evidence. All they are generally asked to use is their rote memory. When we adults effectively program kids not to think, we can ensure that they will strike out. When we deny kids 
The power to ask and pursue their own questions in the game of factory education, we strip them and our nation of the precious resource that is their innate capacity for intelligence and imagination. Although we adults already know this to be true, we act as if we are tragically and heartbreakingly powerless to transform it. I emphasize the phrase to transform it and not merely to stop a single aspect of the broken culture, like testing. So here is my advisory. There is parent criticism ahead. As a play scientist and a pioneer who has driven play deep into the classrooms, I must state something up front. We parents are part of the learning culture, and so parents need to recognize and own their particular parent baggage that keeps the culture from changing. So parents, please check your baggage and wear hard hats to navigate the reading or listening ahead because it will hurt. It's time for parents who say they care about education to get up from their laptops, lift their eyes away from their phones and look intentionally at each other in the harsh light of day because despite the supersized reaction against question three, the petition itself is a dubious commentary on why the state of education is as stuck as ever. I don't mean this to be adversarial. It's a wake-up call. Question three revealed the ultimate enemy, the flawed thinking and wrong-headed behavior in support of the petition itself. Parents, didn't we come up through the factory? Weren't we corrupted and abused? Can't we see how damaged we already are? We say, yeah, we want out of the system. Yet, we buy into it. We buy tutoring to boost the test scores, hoping that the test scores open college admission doors and ultimately our kids' lifetime earning futures. Add to that the impressive numbers of signatures signifying a belief system built on numbers that are all about our vying for position, and we have a generation of kids whose minds are being shaped yet again by the numbers. If we can't arrive at a new position on the game board of learning, we may be destined to hang in education limbo for many years to come. Change on so many fronts is paralytic, and it is us parents who must wake up and break through. Let's forget about the numbers for a minute and see what we can learn by examining the reasons these kids weren't able to answer the question. Could it possibly be mediocre teaching? Could it be teaching while shackled? Could it be twisted parental expectations? Is it possible, though few will admit it, that teachers and parents are complicit in perpetuating this education sideshow in America. To be sure, there are big evil players at the top of the food chain who impose testing on the bottom feeders. But at some point, the oppressed must confront themselves or stay oppressed. Can 40,000 signatures be wrong? Yes, if people so stirred up are looking for a scapegoat rather than looking at themselves, if we're honest, we know that elections can landslide in one way or another, 
and in the land of social media, a wave of consensus can arrive when people are conned. If question three revealed an inconvenient truth, the truth could easily be drowned out by the roar of the numbers rather than by down-to-earth thinking that goes to the root of the problem. As Arthur Brill has shown us in his analysis of the text, there really isn't anything unfair about the passage. If anything's wrong, it's that the kids are not taught to tackle a piece of writing by pulling out elements that can lead to a thoughtful conclusion. What is unfair is the lack of educating, not the date of the writing. What is unfair is to demand that kids think and write in a manner for which they have not been prepared, under the clock, and expect them to perform optimally. What is inherently flawed is to believe that we can somehow coach kids with right answers all through the school years instead of giving them the freedom to read actively and to exercise and articulate their thoughts. Everything needed to answer the question to arrive at a thought was there, except for the internal confidence and mental conditioning they needed to dig. If they had developed investigative reading skills like Monk or Columbo, Sherlock Holmes, or Inspector Gadget, they could nail it. The legacy of testing impacts kids and parents alike. The kids are oversized puppies kept on a short leash and a short answer diet. Incredibly, their parents argue that the passage is out of date. Note that they are not angry that their kids should have been able to read the passage and make a judgment. Instead, parents are demanding that test questions be designed with better calibrated connectivity. Answers should be like Legos. They should come with pieces that snap into place. Now, it was only a handful of celebrities who recently got caught cheating their kids way into college. But it made big news. We could all look down our noses and curl our lips in contempt at these despicable super-rich people. But the 40,000 non-celebrity parents protesting Question 3 on the New York State Regents represent a viral outbreak of the same number disease. With the same thinking that is not only undermining our learning culture, but is also neutering the brains of the next generation. The adults want their money's worth for the tutoring spent to game the test. This takes us to the related question of coding. As Mr. Brill showed us, learning to decode reading passages, a process rooted in science, problem solving, and play is a natural feature of the human brain. To learn to code break is a world apart from learning to write code. For writing code is all about programming. And programming, often by itself, is a highly intense and often physically debilitating screen-focused activity for many adults who don't know how to control the habit-forming power of technology. Yet many parents like the idea and buy into the technology. Thanks to the allure of technology, parents have come to believe that writing code 
is a desirable thing for their children to learn, much like the piano or anything else. These are the parents who don't think twice about handing a smartphone to their kids, believing that this will create tech literacy and advantage in the education rat race. Predictably, many schools now offer coding. Some even allow kids to substitute coding for foreign language. Interestingly, the Silicon Valley rich do not believe in coding as an advantage. They hire people to do their coding. Instead, they want their kids' minds free to navigate and create. The kids in Silicon Valley are getting books and art and the freedom to explore. There may be exceptions, but it's fairly well documented that parents who sit at the top of the technology pyramid do not immerse their kids in the habituating vapors of technology. But by all indications, coding will be taught in school just like another foreign language. That's a problem. In the learning culture, kids don't really learn a foreign language. They pass a test and get a grade. Kids can say, I'm taking a coding class and learn just enough to fill a box on a transcript and they move on. If kids come out of school needing remedial classes to pass their college classes, how much time can they afford to learn code? Whatever code they learn will be at the expense of learning English, their native language. Instead of programming code, Mr. Brill points out that it is more precisely the capacity to code break your own life-empowering native language or to navigate the social moral landscape that the young sorely need. Indeed, the capacity to code break is stripped out of their young minds the day they enter factory kindergarten with its worksheets and cookie-cutter art activities. From the very start of their schooling, kids should be learning to see through the fog, to decipher the messaging all around them, and to learn to think and act for themselves inside the four walls of the conventional classroom. Our children will need to think clearly and creatively to navigate the troubled, uncertain future they will face. To game the factory game of testing, believing that the test question should be made appropriate and perfectly seasoned to taste so that kids can be prepared, so that parents can get their education money's worth, and teachers can prove their value is tacit evidence that parents would rather have their kids' brains drip-fed and programmed rather than prepared and empowered to think for themselves and to navigate life under their own power. If we, dear parent, are undermining our children's capacity to think by helping them game a corrupt system of learning, and we are willing to admit that this is in fact true, then what life-saving decision can we make now? If we can be honest enough with ourselves and honest enough to see that our learning culture is broken and hazardous to our children's health, what do we do? short of homeschooling? The answer, life inside the four walls of school classrooms must be transformed, period. 
quickly, simply, and effectively. This calls for life-saving action. It calls for social and moral action. It calls for a disavowal of the Question 3 petition that you signed. In the end, it calls for the adoption of the birthright of play, a capacity that your children are born with and which should be respected, nurtured, and cultivated throughout their years of schooling. If Albert Einstein found solace in his capacity to play mind games on light beams at age 16, then our kids deserve the same. If MIT offers Media Lab as a playground for its students, then the same renewable lifelong energy and resource should be available to young people in our public schools. If the deepest code for living life which is play, nourishes our children's mental health and well-being, then play must be our organizing principle and the natural foundation of our learning culture. It is time for us to allow our children to use their inner compasses. This is a life-and-death moment in the history of American education. We have trapped ourselves, and now we must free ourselves. For better or for worse, the future of this generation depends on our courage to embrace the life of the principle and promise of play in learning. America must be done with the mass incarceration of its young in a culture that is detrimental to children's natural capacity to learn and explore. It is with this declaration that I have put an alternative petition on the table for parents to sign at the end of this podcast. The petition recognizes and declares play as the rightful and just foundation of learning. Very young children, just getting on their feet, walk the world fully equipped with the capacity to learn their native language. They play, listen, and learn through a process of decoding the sounds of language along with the world around them. Play is an inherent power and a birthright that must be nurtured and augmented through the school years. Not only will a play-based culture enhance children's capacity to learn exponentially, but it will also transform the factory culture into a thriving and cross-pollinating learning habitat. For underlying the adoption of play as a principle and practice and pedagogy is a promise that the learning culture can and must be healed, humanized, and transformed. Only a deeper understanding and practice of play at all levels can achieve such a goal. If you can't support this position, dear comrade parent, then in terms of the bottom line, which is the well-being and the future of children, you perpetuate old-school culture. Brill points to code-breaking as a way to define what and how we want kids to learn. At the heart of coding, or decoding, or code-breaking, is an even deeper code. It is the biological code that we are all born with. It is the code that the system destroys and strips kids of as they enter school. The very thing that kids bring to the table, 
the thing that is a birthright, the thing that kids will need throughout life to innovate and solve problems, is the thing that the system denies them. No, Mary, you may not bring your little lamb into school. We have more important things for you to do. Leave the best part of yourself and your silly lamb outside the door. It is not that I want to intentionally criticize parents, but aligning with play puts me in the position of speaking truth to power. For education to work, all adults must be focused on how their contribution impacts the young directly. If this seems that I'm calling out parents, I am. But it's ultimately a call to arms, a call to adopt the principle of learning. And as you make your decision to reject or reflect, remember that each and every patriot who became a Minuteman or a first responder had to weigh the choice of revolution, the ultimate act of coming around to his or her common sense. Adopting the play ethic is a signal that you want to get a refund on your ticket to sail on the Titanic. So again, if fifth graders can see the puzzle and ask how its pieces got that way, then some adults will arrive with me at this inconvenient conclusion. As great as we like to think our minds are, we are all potentially idiots, robots, and lemmings. If you sign that petition, you just might be all of the above. To embrace play as the foundation of human learning is for all of us to move with deliberate speed to the front of the bus as its tail end dangles in precarious balance over the cliff, which is basically where we all are on this planet. As a reflection in the kaleidoscopic picture of our lives, we now must bear witness to our decades of sleepwalking through habituated consumption in the face of species extinction, and that includes our own kids. If, as education-minded adults, we can't stand up for play as the pathway to our best human attributes, following no guru or TED talker except our children's most obvious love for play, and get together to save ourselves, then we will not wake from our ghost walk and continue to destroy ourselves in tragic, destined drift to ecological and political self-destruction. The future belongs to the young, for better or for worse. To save the human future, we must empower the young to think and create for themselves and get out of their way. Play is the ultimate internal guidance system. Quote, the nicest thing that nature ever did for us, Paul McLean once remarked to me. We must follow the mother of all teachers or bring sadness and regret to an already scarred and traumatized planet. 300 New York teachers signed the call to adopt an American Declaration and Education Bill of Rights in two days, almost a decade ago. Since then, 
the Declaration has held on in a state of suspended animation. And like the Declaration, we, the people, have been asleep at the wheel. Let's wake up from our stupor before it's too late and set a course for our young based on our collective common sense. The Question 3 petition was the wrong place to bank our money. Instead, let's bet on freeing and empowering our learning culture, along with the minds of our children. Thanks for listening to the Play Tectonics podcast. By advancing our opt-in to play day events, parents and students are opening the learning culture by themselves, on their terms, and in the image of children. To find out more, get on our mailing list. Visit optintoplayday.org. That's O-P-T, then the letter N, the number two, P-L-A-Y-D-A-Y dot O-R-G. Thank you very much. See you soon. I'm Emily Hall. Hello again. As thanks for sticking with me till the very end, I want to offer this podcast bonus, an interesting spotlight on a nursery rhyme cited in this podcast that figures large in education history and provides insight into our 21st century struggle. Mary had a little lamb. Her fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, her lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day. It was against the rules. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamb at school. Now, these are regarded as the best-known four lines of verse in the English language. And the words, Mary had a little lamb, spoken by Thomas Edison on November 20, 1877, into his latest invention, the phonograph, with the first words of recorded human speech. Fortunately, there is no ambiguity surrounding the authorship of this tale in which a girl is followed to school by a lamb that makes the children laugh and play. The words capture an actual incident recorded in verse in 1830 by Mrs. Sarah Josepha Hale of Boston, editor of the widely read Ladies' Magazine. Mrs. Hale, who launched a one-woman crusade to nationalize Thanksgiving Day, was also editor of Juvenile Miscellany. When she was told of a case in which a pet lamb followed its young owner into a country schoolhouse, she composed the rhyme and published it in the September-October 1830 issue of the Children's Journal. So thank you, Charles Panati, for that piece found in his book, Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. Thanks for listening.